today's read, Asara, an autobiography written by Asada Shakur, the postscript, Freedom. I couldn't believe that it had really happened, that the nightmare was over, that finally the dream had come true. I was elated, ecstatic, but I was completely disoriented. Everything was the same, yet everything was different. All of my reactions were super intense. I submerged myself in patterns and textures, sucking in smells and sounds as if each day was my last. I felt like a voyeur. I forced myself not to stare at the people whose conversations I strained to overhear. Suddenly, I was flooded with the horrors of prison and every disgusting experience that somehow I had been able to minimize while inside. I had developed the ability to be patient, calculating, and completely self-controlled. For the most part, I had been incapable of crying. I felt rigid, as though chunks of steel and concrete had worked themselves into my body. I was cold. I strained to touch my softness. I was afraid that prison had made me ugly. My comrades helped a lot. They were so beautiful, natural, and healthy. I loved them for their kindness to me. It had been years since I had communicated with anyone intensely, and I talked to them almost compulsively. They were like medicine, helping me to ease back into myself again. But I had changed, and in so many ways, I was no longer the wide-eyed, romantic, young revolutionary who believed the revolution was just around the corner. I still appreciated energetic idealism, but... I had long ago become convinced that revolution was a science. Generalities were no longer enough for me. Like my comrades, I believed that a higher level of political sophistication was necessary and that unity in the black community had to become a priority. We could never afford to forget the lessons we had learned from COINTELPRO, as far as I was concerned, building a sense of National consciousness was one of the most important tasks that lay ahead of us. I couldn't see how we could seriously struggle without having a strong sense of collectivity without being responsible for each other and to each other. It was also clear to me that without a truly internationalist component, nationalism was reactionary. There was nothing revolutionary about nationalism itself by itself. Hitler and Mussolini were nationalists. Any community seriously concerned with its own freedom has to be concerned about other people's freedom as well. The victory of oppressed people anywhere in the world is a victory for black people. Each time one of imperialism's tentacles is cut off, we are closer to liberation. The struggle in South Africa is the most important battle of the century for black people. The defeat of apartheid in South Africa will bring Africans all over the planet closer to liberation. Imperialism 
is an international system of exploitation. And we, as revolutionaries, need to be internationalists to defeat it. Havana, lazy sun against blue-green ocean. A beautiful city of narrow spiderweb streets on one side of town and broad tree-lined avenues on the other. Houses with peeling paint and vintage U.S. cars from the 40s and 50s. It's a busy place, full of buses, people hurrying, kids in wine or gold-colored uniforms, walking leisurely down the streets, swinging book bags. The first thing that hit me were the open doors. Everywhere you go, doors are open wide. You see people inside their homes talking, working, or watching television. I was amazed to find that you could actually walk down the streets at night alone. Old people strolling slowly, carrying shopping bags, stop to ask, ¿Qué hay? ¿Qué hay en, le? ¿Qué hay en la mercada? What are they selling in the market? Without a moment's hesitation, they yell at kids to get out of the street. They stand with their hands on their hips, acting like they own the place. I guess they do. They're not afraid. Es mentira, my neighbors exclaim. It's a lie. Que mentirosa tú eres. What a liar you are. My neighbors ask me what the U.S. is like, and they accuse me of lying when I tell them about the hunger and cold and people sleeping in the streets. They refuse to believe me. How can that be in such a rich country? I tell them about drug addicts and child prostitutes, about crime in the streets, and they accuse me of exaggerating. We know capitalism is not a good system, but you don't have to exaggerate it. Are there really 12-year-old drug addicts? Even though they know about racism and the Ku Klux Klan about unemployment, such things are unreal to them. Cuba is a country of hope. Their reality is so different. I'm amazed at how much Cubans have accomplished in so short a time since the revolution. There are new buildings everywhere. Schools, apartment houses, clinics, hospitals, and daycare centers. They are not like the skyscrapers going up in midtown Manhattan. There are no exclusive condominiums or luxury office buildings. The new buildings are for the people. Medical care, dental care, and hospital visits are free. Schools at all educational levels are free. Rent is no more than about 10% of salaries. There are no taxes, no income, city, federal, or state taxes. It is so strange to pay the price actually listed on products without any tax added. Movies, plays, concerts, and sports events all cost one or two pesos at the most. Museums are free. On Saturdays and Sundays, the streets are packed with people dressed up and ready to hang out. I was amazed to discover that such a small island has such a rich cultural life and is so lively, particularly when the United States press gives just the opposite picture. I am being introduced at a party. 
The hostess tells me that the man is from El Salvador. I hold out my hand to shake his. A few seconds too late, I realize his arm is missing. He asks me what country I come from. I'm so upset and ashamed, I'm almost shaking. Yo soy de los Estados Unidos, pero no soy Yankee, I tell him. A friend of mine had taught me that phrase. Every time someone asked me where I was from, I cringed. I hated to tell people I was from the U.S. I would have preferred to say I was New African, except that hardly anyone would have understood what that meant. When I read about death squads in El Salvador or the bombing of hospitals in Nicaragua, I felt like screaming. Too many people in the United States support death and destruction without being aware of it. They indirectly support the killing of people without ever having to look at the corpses. But in Cuba, I could see the results of U.S. foreign policy. Torture victims on crutches who came from other countries to Cuba for treatment, including Namibian children who had survived massacres and evidence of the vicious aggression the United States government had committed against Cuba, including sabotage and numerous assassination attempts against Fidel. I wondered how all those people in the States who tried to sound tough, saying that the U.S. should go in here, bomb there, take over this, attack that, would feel if they knew that they were indirectly responsible for babies being burned to death. I wondered how they would feel if they were forced to take moral responsibility for that. It sometimes seems that people in the States are so accustomed to watching death on eyewitness news, watching people starve to death in Africa, being tortured to death in Latin America, or shot down on Asian streets that somehow, for them, people across the ocean, people up there or down there or over there, are not real. One of the first questions on the minds of blacks from the states when they come to Cuba is whether or not racism exists. I was certainly no exception. I had read a little about the history of black people in Cuba and knew that it was very different from the history of black people in the states. Cuban racism had not been as violent or as institutionalized as U.S. racism and the tradition of the two races, blacks and whites, fighting together for liberation, first from colonization and later from dictatorship, was much stronger in Cuba. Cuba's first war for independence began in 1868 when Carlos Manuel de Cespedes freed his slaves and encouraged them to join the army in the fight against Spain. One of the most important figures in that war was Antonio Maceo, a black man who was the chief military strategist. Blacks played a crucial role in Cuba's labor movement in the 1950s. Jesus Menendez and Lazaro Peña led two key unions. And I knew that blacks like Juan Almeida, now Comandante of the Revolution, had played a significant role in the revolutionary struggle to overthrow Batista. But I was most interested in learning what had happened to blacks after the triumph of the revolution. I spent my first weeks in Havana walking and watching 
Nowhere did I find a segregated neighborhood. But several people told me that where I was living had been all white before the revolution. Just from casual observation, it was obvious that race relations in Cuba were different from what they were in the U.S. Blacks and whites could be seen together everywhere, in cars, walking down streets, kids of all races played together. It was definitely different. Whenever I met someone who spoke English, I asked their opinion about the race situation. Racism is illegal in Cuba, I was told. Many shook their heads and said, Aquí no hay racismo. There is no racism here. Although I heard the same response from everyone, I remained skeptical and suspicious. I couldn't believe it was possible to eliminate hundreds of years of racism just like that in 25 years or so. To me, revolutions were not magical, and no magic wand could be waved to create changes overnight. I'd come to see revolutions as a process. I eventually became convinced that the Cuban government was completely committed to eliminating all forms of racism. There were no racist institutions, structures, or organizations, and I understood how the Cuban economic system undermined rather than fed racism. I had assumed that blacks would be working within the revolution to implement the changes and to ensure the continuation of the non-racist policies that Fidel and the revolutionary leaders had instituted in every aspect of Cuban life. A black Cuban friend helped me have a better understanding. He told me that Cubans took their African heritage for granted, that for hundreds of years, Cubans had danced to African rhythms, performed traditional rituals, and worshipped gods like Shango and Ogun. He told me that Fidel, in his speech, had told the people, we are all Afro-Cubans from the very lightest to the very darkest. I told him that I thought it was the duty of Africans everywhere on this planet to struggle to reverse the historical patterns created by slavery and imperialism. Although he agreed with me, he quickly informed me that he didn't think of himself as an African. Yo soy cubano. I am Cuban, and it was obvious he was very proud of being Cuban. He told me a story about a white Cuban who had volunteered twice to fight in Angola. He had received awards for his heroism. His case is not all common in Cuba, but there are some who have problems adjusting to change. Well, what was his problem, I asked. When the guy came home, he caused a big scandal with his family. His daughter wanted to marry a black man. He opposed the marriage. He said he wanted his grandchildren to look like him. It was a big argument, and his whole family got into it. This guy was so mixed up, he went crazy when his daughter called him a racist. He wanted to fight everybody. He was out in the street, crying and kicking lampposts. He didn't know what to do. All the time he was in Angola, fighting against racism, he never thought about his own racism. I agreed with him that whites fighting against racism had to fight on two levels, against institutionalized racism 
and against their own racist ideas. What happened to the man? I asked. Well, his daughter got married anyway, and his family convinced him to go to the wedding. And now, he babysits for his grandchildren, and he says he's crazy about them. But the guy is still not right in the head. Every time I see him, he's apologetic. I told him I don't want his apologies. Let him apologize to his daughter and her husband. As long as he supports the revolution, I don't care what he thinks. I care more about what he does. If he really supports the revolution, then he's going to change. And even if he never changes, his kids are going to change. And his grandchildren will change even more. That's what I care about. The whole race question in Cuba was even more confusing to me because all the categories of race were different. In the first place, most white Cubans wouldn't even be considered white in the U.S. They'd be considered Latinos. I was shocked to learn that a lot of Cubans who looked black to me didn't consider themselves black. They called themselves mulatos, colorados, Havaos and a whole bunch of other names. It seemed to me that anyone who wasn't jet black was considered a mulatto. The first time someone called me a mulata, I was so insulted that if I had been able to express myself in Spanish, we would have had a heated argument right there on the spot. Yo no, yo no soy una mulata. Yo, yo soy una mujer negra. Y orgullosa soy una mujer negra. I would tell people as soon as I learned a little Spanish, I'm not a mulatto, but a black woman, and I'm proud to be black. Some people understood where I was coming from, but others thought I was too hung up on the race question. To them, mulatto was just a color like red, green, or blue, but to me, it represented a historical relationship. All of my associations with the word mulatto were negative. It represented slavery, slave owners raping black women. It represented a privileged caste, educated in European values and culture. In some Caribbean countries, it represented the middle level of a hierarchical three-caste system, the caste that acted as a buffer class between the white rulers and the black masses. I found it impossible to separate the word from its history. It reminded me of a saying I had heard repeatedly since childhood. If you're white, you're right. If you're brown, stick around. And if you're black, get back. I realized that in order to really understand the situation, I had to study Cuban history thoroughly. But somehow, I felt that the mulatto thing hindered Cubans from dealing with some of the negative ideas left over from slavery. The Black Pride movement had been very important in helping black people in the U.S. and in other English-speaking countries to view their African heritage in a positive light. I had never heard of any equivalent movement around mulatto pride, and I couldn't imagine what the basis for it would be. To me, it was extremely important for all the descendants of Africans everywhere on this planet to struggle to reverse the political, economic, psychological and social patterns created by slavery and imperialism. The problem of racism takes on so many forms and displays so many subtleties. 
it is a complicated problem that will require much analysis and much struggle to resolve. Although, in some ways, Cubans and I approach the problem from different angles, I felt we shared the same goal, the abolition of racism all over the world. I respected the Cuban government, not only for adopting non-racist principles, but for struggling to put those principles into practice. I held my breath. As I waited for my aunt to pick up the phone, it had been five years since I had last spoken to her. Five years since I had been able to contact my family. Hopefully, she hadn't changed her number. A click, and then, at last, I heard her voice. I was so happy. Auntie, I almost shouted. It's me, Asada. Who? Asada. Who? It's me, Asada. I'm in Cuba. I'm in Cuba. I love you. It's so good to hear your voice. How are you? The voice on the other end was my aunt's, but it was so cold. I could could hardly believe it. Oh, really? Asada. Mm, Right. Well, I'm fine. What's the matter, auntie? It's me, Asada. Are you all right? I'm fine. Auntie. Oh, I missed you so much. It's all right. Everything's okay. I'm fine. I'm fine. How's everybody? How's everybody there? Again, the icy voice. Everything is just fine. What do you want? What do I want? What do you mean, what do I want? I want to talk to you. I love you. You sound so cold. Well, it... There was a pause and then say something so I'll know it's really you. Something only you and I know. Finally understanding, I said the first thing that popped into my head, Auntie Panty Jackals Tanty, it was a stupid childhood rhyme and nobody else could possibly know about it. I used to taunt her with it, taunt her with it when I was a kid. It is you. Oh my God, it really is you, she screamed. Wait, give me a second to catch my breath. How are you? Fine, I said. How's mommy and Kakuya? Your mother's fine. Oh, she's going to be so happy when I tell her I've talked to you. Kakuya's fine too. Your daughter is so big, you won't recognize her. She's almost tall as you are. I told her I wanted to call my mother and Kakuya as soon as I finished talking to her. No. You call her tomorrow. Let me call her first so she really knows it's you. Where did you say you are? Cuba. I'm calling from Cuba. I'm a political refugee here. Cuba, Ma repeated. Cuba? Are you okay there? I mean, are you safe? I think so, I told her. I feel fine. It seems that way. Talking to Kakuya and my mother the next day was like a dream. Hi, this little voice said into the phone. It was the most beautiful voice I ever heard. I was nervous and happy, 
sweating buckets. How are you? I asked my daughter. Fine. I felt like a pot boiling over. All the feelings I'd kept inside for so long came gushing out. I had a million things I wanted to ask her, a million things I wanted to say. My mother and I made plans. She and my aunt and Kaguya would come down as soon as possible. It seemed too good to be true, and it was. Month after month passed by. In order for Kakuya to get her passport, she needed a birth certificate. My mother told me that for 10 years, Elmhurst Hospital had refused to issue Kakuya a birth certificate. Finally, after months of hassling, Evelyn had to go to court to get a document proving that my daughter had been born. Over the months that followed, I began to understand the kind of hell that the police and the FBI had put my family through. After I had escaped, the police had so persistently and brutally badgered my mother that she had had a heart attack. What they had done to Evelyn was beyond belief. I understood why Evelyn had reacted to my call the way she did. At one time, Evelyn's office telephone had 10 intercepts on it. She and my mother had received phony notes in my handwriting. They had received telephone calls with my voice telling them to come to the spot and bring some money. They had found electric eyes and all kinds of other devices in and around their houses. They had experienced strange break-ins where nothing of value was taken, but they had survived and grown stronger in the process. As the plane swooped down over Havana, it seemed that my heart was beating on my ribs to get out. My stomach hurt. My mouth was dry like cotton. It seemed like a million people poured off the plane before the tall little girl with the great big eyes started down the ramp. I could see my mother looking frail yet so determined with my aunt behind her looking triumphant. How much we had all gone through. Our fight had started on a slave ship years before we were born. Venceremos. My favorite word in Spanish crossed my mind. Ten million people had stood up to the monster. Ten million people only 90 miles away. We were here, together, in their land. My small little family holding each other after so long. There was no doubt about it. Our people would one day be free. The cowboys and bandits didn't own the world.